Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Zoe Bisbang is a licensed psychotherapist, mother of three, and founder of the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting resource, including a wonderful podcast through which she speaks to parents and professionals across the globe about how to nurture a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Zoe is also the owner and director of Body Positive Therapy NYC, a group psychotherapy practice working with children, adolescents, and adults struggling across the eating disorder spectrum. Zoe, it is so wonderful to have you here. I have long admired your work and it is total privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Zoe, Vanessa first introduced me to your work when she shared your Instagram page, Full Bloom Project, which everyone should check out. I love it. And it makes me want to start off here, which is tell us everything about you. Tell us <laughs> what what was it that got you to where you are now career-wise? And you know, that's a very big meandering question, but just sort of what was the general path and what's your background? Yeah. Well, it's funny that I'll tell you the the version I most identify with and tell, and then I'm gonna add a little special place in my heart for puberty because of you guys. 
So I've been in the field of eating disorder treatment as a psychotherapist for years, like my whole career, my internships and grad school. And I always knew I was interested in working with eating disorders. And in that process of working with eating disorders and getting specialized in working with children, adolescents with eating disorders, my friend Leslie Block and I were kind of on similar clinical trajectories and we were kind of setting up our private practices around the same time and having kids around the same time and treating youth with eating disorders around the same time. And honestly, we're getting to a place of like, what can we do to prevent these? Because this is just horrifying. Like everybody's so sick. Everybody's so just in so much pain and the families are just exhausted. And, and, you know, we know that parents don't cause eating disorders, but what I know through the interventions that we practice with family-based treatment, that parents can be incredibly instrumental in healing their kids from them. And so Leslie and I would do a lot of peer supervisions together and mom coffees together and retreats together. And then we were like, let's dig into the prevention research together. And then we decided to do this podcast together. So Leslie has since moved on and it's just me right now, um, helming full bloom. But this sort of deep dive that we did a couple of years ago into prevention, which really we discovered is so multidisciplinary, which is much like eating disorder treatment anyway, this sort of multidisciplinary nature of it. But in realizing that there were so many dots that needed to be connected in kind of child and adolescent mental health and feeding and also in social justice and just the sort of, we can talk more, but like a lot of misinformation about health and weight and all these ways in which people don't realize, parents don't realize, teachers don't realize they are increasing risk for kids. And so we started to have these incredible conversations with researchers and activists and wanted to find a way to bridge the gap between where a lot of this information is kind of siloed either in academia or honestly in like super fringy circles of like, you know, truly like fat positive progressive spaces and, and sort of nothing in between. And uh, anyway, that sort of became the identity of full bloom. Like we want to bridge the gap in, in relatable ways. And, and through this, I realized how vulnerable a time puberty is for like everything, but the development of eating disorders as well. And it just made me think about, gosh, I could have used this. Like I could have used this. My mom could have used this. And so I know on some level, there's a really personal kind of pulse there that drives me to, to just make sure that more parents and more youth know what's normal, what's not, what's healthy, what's not. Anyway, it's a long answer. And, you know, I, I think a big piece of what you just said at the end, that puberty caveat, is that normal looks so many different ways. So there are some kids, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. There are some kids who grow up before they grow out. There are some kids who grow out before they grow up. There are some kids who stay proportioned the same way all the way through their pubertal transformation. It's very hard to be able to assess someone and determine everything's okay. And also to reassure someone when everything's okay. Many of my friends have had clinical situations where they either are catching something where it looks like a kid is doing, getting into this great healthy zone only to realize that they're at the beginning of a very slippery slope towards something that's very unhealthy. And that is a fear of parents as their kids are growing, developing. And likewise, the opposite is true. 
I find that you do a beautiful job of navigating all of that. And maybe we can get into some of those conversations. Yeah. So I I want us to go deep into puberty. And Zoe, I similarly have a kind of an origin story, puberty origin story around weight and body image. But I want to define some terms before we dive into the puberty nitty gritty. Can you talk about what being body positive and creating a body positive environment actually is, right? Because it's such a, it could be interpreted in so many ways. And as you say, it's a very interdisciplinary area where it's pediatricians and mental health professionals and eating disorder experts and families and, you know, schools and all of that. So talk us through like the elements and what it actually means so that we have a good foundation for the conversation. It's an important question. And this term body positivity, it's a little controversial actually, because on one, I think the most important thing to note and honor is that it comes from a movement in the sixties that is not designed for the three of us. It's not designed for white, straight size, cis women. Like that's not who it's for. And I have mixed feelings even about the fact that I've, you know, I don't know. I don't think I've co-opted it, but I think I am among the white straight size cis women with privilege that has taken it. But I think that we have these sort of roots that really is about fat acceptance in many ways and really designed for truly marginalized identities, people of color and people in truly larger bodies, right. That are living in like the margins of society. And then we have this sort of Instagram hashtag body positivity that unfortunately a lot of women that had a six pack and now have a four pack are like, I could be body positive. And so could you, no offense to her, but like, that's who's sort of the, I'd like to say is the greatest defender of the, of the, you know, co-opting the term, but body positivity, it's not even necessarily about feeling great in your body all the time but it really comes from a philosophy or or just like an ethos that everybody, everybody deserves to feel okay slash good in their bodies, about their bodies. In a way, all bodies are good bodies. That's the idea of body positivity with a special centering of the most marginalized bodies. And the reality is that there is this sort of residue, right? That then all sorts of people experience you know, we could call it weight stigma, for example, that there are people that are experiencing it in more of a institutional way or an interpersonal way. Like someone's actually making fun of them because of their size, but most people experience some kind of internalized weight stigma. So regardless of where you are on the body size spectrum, you could have an experience, right? Where you think that there is something wrong with your body. And I do think that body positivity has there's room for it to be for everyone because if we use it to really center values around size acceptance, right, then we can create spaces where more people can get that all bodies are good bodies. And then we can have a better shot at feeling good in our bodies about our bodies. But I really like to be clear with people that body positivity, it's not just about feeling good, but it is about having respect for all sizes, all people, all bodies. That is such a slam dunk explanation. So help us square then with that, this 
idea that there are some illnesses, chronic illnesses, physical issues that go along with carrying too much or too little weight. And how do we as a society both respect and empower people regardless of how they're shaped, but at the same time, look out, especially in the healthcare field, look out proactively for their health and wellness. What does that, what does that combination look like? I know it's so tricky. And it's honestly something that every parent group I speak with, every group of adults I speak with, someone has a question about this and every expert I speak with, I have a question for them about this because, you know, What I find to be really imperative, both to practice body positivity, is to really embrace inclusive, an inclusive definition of health. So I'm a huge advocate for the health at every size movement. And one of the things that I try to explain to people is that health at every size does not necessarily mean health at any size, right? But we have to start from a place of helping all people, and I'm so curious in particular, Cara, to talk to you about this, like to have healthcare professionals also really hammer home for people that health and weight are not the same thing. And even when there may be correlates between weight and health, that we're not going to moralize around health. Because one of the things that I've been told by countless people, both in terms of research of weight stigma, but also lived experience with real weight stigma, weight stigma confounds everything. So when you have somebody that is having medical issues that are the doctor is feeling are secondary to weight, or we might say are, are correlates of weight, We have to hold that recommendations for that person to lose weight, for example, comes with a whole host of unintended consequences, both for, you know, psychological well-being, but also potentially health, like weight cycling, for example, has all sorts of negative side effects as well. So I think we have to start from a place of this is really tricky. And most importantly, we have to sort of take weight out of our concept of what health and well-being is so that you can have a better shot of health if what you want is health. And if you don't, right, if you, and we have to think about the social determinants of health here mm-hmm. as well, but we have to figure out shorthand ways to have really complicated, like conversations about like complicated things. Uh, the most important shorthand I think is health and weight are not the same. If we need to look at your health. If you want to look at your health, let's look at it independent of weight. Okay. But let's talk about what age we make that pivot because in the world of pediatrics. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about not telling kids that they should eat for weight or that they should exercise for weight. We talk about substituting the word health. We talk about, right? And pediatricians so often are trying to destigmatize the weight that they do frame it in terms of health. So we are not helping this situation in the way you've described it, because we are enmeshing two terms in order to help kids who are going through a stage of transformation in a society that judges shapes on all ends of every spectrum. And we have conflated the terms. I have conflated those terms. Help us understand what would be a better frame for it for maybe 
we can start with a five-year-old and then a 10-year-old and then a 15-year-old. How do we not conflate those terms, but not make a child who might be predisposed to an eating disorder? Cara, I, I want to ground that issue, right? Because this is the constant tension, the tension between knowing there are health issues that arise when people at a certain point are carrying excess weight. And sometimes it's just people don't want to look the way they look when they're carrying excess weight or parents don't want their children to look the way they look when they're carrying excess weight. But I want to ground it in an example. I want to give us a scenario that gets at this issue, particularly around puberty. And then Zoe, talk us through the ideal way to kind of address this, right? Let's say we've got... Do a 10-year-old. A 10-year-old. I was going to say a 10-year-old girl yeah. who has gained a significant amount of weight in the last year, you know, maybe even that call you, it... That you can see. That, that you can see. you can see. Right? Like, I, I'm not going to measure it, but like, I know kids who've gained, you know, 15 or 20 pounds in that sort of 9 to 10-year-old year or 10 to 11-year-old year. And her body looks significantly different. Her, she's not fitting into her clothes. She's gone up several sizes. And I think, Zoe, in our past conversations, you referred to it as the puberty pudge. And that I had the puberty pudge. I know other people who've had the puberty pudge. So I'm the parent. I'm looking at my child. I may or may not have a history of eating disorders myself or low self-esteem around my own body. What the hell do I do? Like, how do I handle that? I'm staring at my beloved child's body. I am judging my beloved child's body. I am judging my own parenting in relationship to how her body has become that way in this year. What, what do I do? How do I, how do I handle it? This is why I created Full Bloom, like for this moment, because first and foremost, the, it, it's with, like what you're saying, for the parent to be able to notice, oh my gosh, I'm judging. I want parents to notice that. I want parents to really not judge themselves for their disgust. I want parents to look at their chubby child or notice more roles or notice that they've got to buy them another size up on. And I want them to notice privately in a journal with their therapist, with their partner. Oh my gosh, I'm afraid they're going to be fat because then we have access to the weight stigma. And I want that parent to come to full bloom, whatever Instagram or send me a message so I can find you a therapist because I want parents, honestly, to have more community than they do currently have to feel safe to say, I don't know what to do here. And then I see them eating chips and I'm like, oh, I don't want them eating chips. I want you to know that you're having that reaction so that we can start to create a little space between you and your thoughts and feelings and fears and what your child needs. Because your child obviously does not need you to project your own weight stigma and anxiety and your own trauma onto them, which by the way, is easier said than done because that's what intergenerational trauma looks we, like around We talk body. about it all the time. Puberty is like the gold mine of us bringing our crap into our kids' lives, whether it's about weight or sex or menstruation or whatever it is. It's like, it, it, it's like, 
we can't bring our baggage into it. So your, your vice is first recognize unfiltered what judgment you're placing on the observations that you're, that you're making and don't judge yourself for making that observation. Okay. That's super, super, super important and really helpful. And use language, like help yourself out. I am experiencing weight stigma or fat phobia, like give yourself language to understand it. Right. And even better understand why you're feeling that way. Come at it from a place of there's a reason for why I feel this way. Not there's something wrong with me that I feel this way, but rather there is a reason. And so good that I'm noticing because now I need to process that and get some support around that and do my work over here so that then when I interact with my child, my discomfort and my essentially, you know, internalized anti-fat bias is not oozing out of me as my child goes through this very intense and awkward phase, right? Whether or not they are considered quote overweight. Yeah. So you say phase, I want to put a pin right there because I've got a million examples of parents in my mind who are screaming internally going, okay, I can acknowledge my phobia. I can acknowledge my fear, but my job as a parent is to keep my kids safe and healthy. And this is not healthy. And I anticipate what you are going to say, if I'm guessing correctly, is neither is it healthy to be going down this path of managing weight gain in the way that many parents begin to manage weight gain, because that's what gets us on some slippery slope. And I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. But step two, before we get there, walk us through step two. So step one is to recognize your bias and see where you're coming from. How do parents then square that with what really might need to be done to do their job, which is to keep their kids safe and healthy. How do they do that? Where do they start? Yeah. I mean, I do think that it's important to come at this with that mantra, health and weight are not the same. Health and weight are not the same. Health and weight are not the same. As many times as you need to tell yourself that so that when you approach your child, and by which I mean, approach them observationally, right? I don't want you talking to your kid yet until you have all of this sort of internalized stuff, you know, in a, in a better place than you, you were a moment ago when you were like, I'm grossed out by the fact that this is my child's body. Now I basically want parents to sort of know that they're going to do their own work, right. With their own bias. They're going to remind themselves their mantra health and weight are not the same. And then you're going to go hopefully as non-judgmentally as you can with no preconceived notions and just start collecting clues. So I want a parent to then start to notice, has anything changed? do you feel like your child is like stress eating or comfort eating, for example? Yeah, yeah. If they are, that's an important thing to note. If they're not, that's an important thing to note. Are they still going to soccer and going to dance and their body's changing, but they're still doing all their movement behaviors? Are they still having joy for movement? That's something to note. Are they stopping are they not wanting to go to dance anymore? Are they are they not moving as much anymore? Something to note. So is their food changing? Have they increased types of foods? Are certain foods dropping off? Like what is actually happening? Like come collect all the data you can with what's actually happening because then we can start to figure out like 
is this child just like doing their thing developmentally necessarily, right? Or is this child struggling with something that needs attending to? But let's try to get at the root of what's going on and make sure there is something going on because sometimes there's nothing going on. Um, Yeah, go ahead. If you're supposed to note it, but not say anything yet, and you have a child who instead of 10 is 11 or 12 and in middle school and starting to choose their own foods out of your sight and you really don't know. You you know what's happening for breakfast and you know what's happening for dinner, but you you actually don't know. How can you be an observer without asking them for all the data points from the middle of the day? How does that work? I think it becomes less about trying to figure out what they're eating, you know, and more about trying to figure out how are they doing? Mm-hmm. How are they doing? Like, you know, 11, 12, like you, you would probably still have an idea about how they're spending their time and other areas of their life. Like, are they hanging out alone a lot? And yes, sometimes we do discover that an 11 year old, 12 year old is walking home from school alone and stopping at a bodega and like, you know, collecting foods to eat in a sort of comfort eating kind of way and is isolating. And like, we want to look at that because that child is, is needing something, right? But if we have a sense that our kids are like, they're kind of doing their lives, you know, and they're like going to their activities and they're seeing their friends and their general level of well-being is still pretty good, then I think we just want to differentiate the difference between the kind of what are they eating versus how are they doing? How are they feeling? And what about for, because there are a lot of these in the world, what about for the the kid who is a really good pleaser slash manipulator of the adults. Manipulator, not in the negative sense of the word, just that is a skill that they have where when when the parent is trying to assess what's going on, everything looks good and rosy from the outside. Can you walk us through how parents, when they're assessing their kids, a couple of things they might look for that are more subtle cues as opposed to, the more obvious ones. So just for context, are we talking specifically about a kid who's gained a substantial amount of weight or are we talking like who's the kid we're talking about? Yeah. So, right. Because we're, we're talking around a very big issue. And I think in this example, it started with the, the kid who has gained a significant amount of weight. I do think we must cover the opposite end as well. The kid who is losing the weight But if you could maybe address the kid who has gained, who looks and acts perfect, school's going great, happy and engaged at the dinner table, you know, involved in activities, outside activities, moving, the parents are are sitting there going, "I, I have no explanation for this. So are there any other deeper dive observations that those parents can do before they reach out to get advice on how to take the next step. This parent who's like observing their kid, who's ostensibly doing very well, is the only thing that the parents are concerned about weight gain? In this example, yeah, let's say that. I mean, honestly, this is where if your child is doing their life and is meeting their milestones and is happy or not even just happy, is just doing their normal adolescent thing, and is getting dressed and is feeling like has some style, you know, like is expressing themselves. 
then you have an issue that has to do with you and you. Like if your doctor, you know, you go to your well check and hopefully you have a non-stigmatizing doctor who's like, all looks good, labs look good, you know, see you next year. They're growing, they're in puberty. Like body change is normal, weight gain is normal. I think parents actually need to probably normalize that like body change is normal and do a lot of sort of supportive self-talk for themselves to help them confront what is hard about this because there's no indication, especially if their doctor's saying, look, you know, doing well, like there's no indication that there is a problem except for the problem that's sort of internal. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. 
Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. And action. Hey, everyone. I'm Sarah Gretzky. And I'm Natalie Buck. And together, we are the Net Chicks. We're here to talk anything and everything on screen, including what your favorite celebs are up to. And if you want to know what shows we are absolutely loving and hating, well, thank God, because we will be unpacking for you every single Thursday. So grab your Netflix and some popcorn because the chicks are coming. And scene. Car, can you explain like physiologically why it is normal and natural for kids in these early stages of puberty to gain weight? Like why this huge leap and why maybe they grow out before they grow up? You know, Zoe, I just want to put a pin in that. Actually, we use that phrase a lot. And I always wonder if there's any like issue with the way we frame that. I It strikes me as a fairly neutral way of describing what happens, but I'm curious 
to hear from you if you see that as a kind of a stigmatizing way of, of framing it. I appreciate you asking because I used to say that as well. And um, it is a little because not all kids are going to grow up that much. Like some people are meant to be short and stout, like that's, or short and fat. Like that's not necessarily an unhealthy build depending on the, the genetics or the ancestry of that person. So I do think it's important to give a short, quick reassurance that like, and, and I'd curious to hear how Cara would put it, but a way to normalize that like bodies absolutely grow outward during puberty, but maybe to say, and many, or, and some then elongate or some grow up, but to also figure out a way to make it okay for some bodies to grow out and then grow up a little bit, but stay kind of grow out, you know, cause we have to find ways to make it okay for all bodies to be good bodies and even fat bodies or chubby bodies, right? So that would be the only caveat. Will you, let's just do a quick, what words are okay here? Because you're using words that people are afraid to use. Can you quickly do a rundown of what words are politically correct at this point with weight? So I'm going to say a word. And so you tell me if that word is cool or if it's problematic. Okay. And then... It's sort of like family feud. Yes. You know? Okay. So is it okay to call someone fat? With consent? Yes. So fat is one where there is sort of a, a group of fat people and fat activists that are interested in reclaiming the word fat as a neutral descriptor. I believe it should be used as a neutral descriptor. In our culture, there's no way most people go for that, right? Because it has so many connotations. Even this morning, I had a whole thing because my kids said, you're a big fat liar to the other kid. And I was like, (gasps) but most people wouldn't even register that that's a problematic use of that word. So the answer is, I think we all need to do a better job of finding ways to get comfortable with the word fat and use it as we can without putting that on somebody else who could potentially, you know, we wouldn't want to assign that word to somebody before they told us they were comfortable using that word. But I do use that word with my kids. Like, I don't want that word to be, oh, don't say that about that body because there are fat bodies and fat is a perfectly fine word. You just need to have consent from somebody else to use it about their body. How about chubby? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You use the word chubby. I think it's a similar thing. I mean, chubby to me, you know, I understand that kind of culturally we accept that it's perfectly fine to be a chubby baby. And then to be a chubby adolescent, you probably wouldn't think to say that again to an adolescent child or adolescent girl that you might've when she had chubby cheeks as a baby. But I think to find ways to use the word chubby in the way that you might use the word fat to describe other things, right? Again, you don't have permission from somebody to use that word to describe them don't but i think we need to we should destigmatize the word chubby as well because it's a it's a very descriptive word but we want to get out of the habit of well this brings up other things too like even if you're saying oh you're so cute you're so chubby that's we don't necessarily have right. permission right did you guys ever do the um i'm a member of the <laughs> chubby wubby bubby bubby baby club And it's like, it's great. And we did it with our kids when they were little. And then we do it with my dad, who's 80, who has big chubby cheeks. 
But like somewhere in the middle, it's no longer cool or funny. It's, that's a long stretch in the middle that it's not cool and funny. It's a long stretch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do it forever because I work with kids and it's endlessly funny to see just like a middle-aged lady do it. But yeah, I've never thought, okay, so Kari, you have another one. What's the next one? So I, I'm thinking about the, the clothing size Husky. Remember that, which... What do you mean remember so that? I have children in my house who wear the clothing do, size is, husky. Is there still yes. husky around? Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I have it's not still seen. around. So what about husky? What does that even mean? One is of the, it just a euphemism? Uh, I think it's supposed to be, but this is the thing. It's like, why do we have to... Is euphemize a word? Wait, why do we need euphemisms for fat or big? Like, I don't, you know, I mean, I get it and I don't. And this was something I, I had a really cool opportunity to consult with the, the team at Nike when they were developing their kids line, like a kind of plus size kids line. We had a whole conversation about this. I think they landed on the power line. Like they wanted other words to describe. And, and honestly, this sort of extended sizing or just have more numbers, like don't categorize it, you know? Right. Um, so I, I do actually think that Husky is a, it's a strange choice, you know? Like why can't all of the sizes be at the same department? Right, it's a very strange choice. And how about big? You just used big. Big, good, bad, depends. Depends. I think some people, I mean, one of the things that I like to tell parents is to have real conversations with your kids. Like, what do you want to call your body? How would you describe it, you know? bigger, larger. Do you like the word fat? You know, I mean, the, I think that there's, it's more about the way we talk about it with people. And I think that to say bigger body, I've, I've spoken to people who say, I don't like bigger body. I, I prefer fat. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you, it's affirming to, to be like, there are lots of choices. There's incredible English language here that we're working with or any language we're working with here. Like if we put them all on the table, what jives with you? You know, I've taken care of so many kids who are extraordinarily thin as they go through young childhood and then puberty. And it's hard for them. This is hard for a lot of people to understand why that would be hard. It's often very hard for these kids too. And they don't want to be called thin or skinny. Um, Those words are as offensive to them as someone who didn't choose to be called fat might feel about being called fat. Can you talk about language on the other end of the spectrum? Yeah. I mean, I think this is important to both validate the lived experience of that person. Like what you're saying, we cannot forget that side of the spectrum. And also we have to be holding in our minds that institutionally, right. In our culture, we have a problem in our culture with weight stigma, right. And anti-fat bias. So there's sort of an institutional layer of this that is not present for people in like super thin bodies. And that does not mean they're not experiencing it in, you know, internal or even in, you know, intrapersonal people get made fun of for being skinny all the time as well. And I think it's, again, it's the same conversation. Okay. You don't like the word skinny. Let's not use it. What word would you use to describe your body? I think Zoe for boys though, there oh my is, God. A... we read each other's minds. I know. Okay, Carl, go, we're spending Vanessa. too much time together. <laughs> on Zoom across the continent. I mean, it's Um, ridiculous. For boys, and I have one in my house who was just naturally thin and, you know, bony for a long time. And he was super self-conscious and felt like he was being made fun of or judged for not being big and muscular and 
you know, I even had a situation between my two boys, one of whom is like a big dude and the other one was very lean. And he was like, come on, you got to beef up. Like, let's feed you. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. No, no. Like backing up. And now these are teenage boys. I can easily say, hey, that doesn't feel good. You can't talk to your brother that way. Like what's another way of talking to him about it? But with younger kids, you know, 11, 12 year olds who are feeling, it's a little bit harder to have that really direct conversation. But I do think teen boys feel, I mean, Carr has a whole chapter about it in Decoding Boys, which is so important and instrumental about how self-conscious they feel about being thin as the adolescent males in our culture. And I think for the grownups that are in their lives, the parents and the, you know, trusted grownups at school or anything, it's just about valid, like being there with them in their pain, like asking them, what is like, what's that like if they're willing to talk to you? Right. Just say, it's hard. It's, it must be so painful to notice that you're in a different body than him or than what you want or whatever. And to try to offer some very light education around the, the, risks associated with trying to change who you are, right? If you're trying to, I mean, I think about it, like if you're trying to change your sexuality, it's like, you can't, like you, I don't believe you can, you know, you just are who you are and same with gender and same with body size. Like you can't, I mean, there, and then I think it's an opportunity to raise savvy consumers. It's like, look, we live in a culture where you're going to be sold stuff all the time, bulk up this or you know, cut and shred that or this diet plan or that. And, you know, look, ultimately you will make those decisions as you age, how much of your time and money you want to invest in the pursuit of changing who you are, but know that we prefer you as you are and you will have much more well-being in your life. Ultimately, if you can just ride this out, that whole, like it's get, it gets better. Okay. But I, I'm so glad you went there because It feels to me like one of the things that we do as parents and all adults who are invested in the lives of tweens and teens seem to fall prey to this routinely is we tell kids it's going to get better. Don't worry. You're going to get through this. You're going to get at the other end. And unlike gender or sexuality or some other of these personality descriptors or persona descriptors that we all carry along with us, right? This one, the shape of your body at this moment does not necessarily predict who you are going to be in five or 10 years. And we are asking kids to trust us on their journey that they are going to end up a certain way. It's exactly what you said in the beginning about growing up and growing out. Some are not going to grow up as much. So what we are doing is we are talking out of both sides of our mouths as the adults who care about them, right? We are saying it's a-okay to be however you are. We we love you and we support you. But by the way, it's all going to work out. It's going to be fine. And that second half is a big mistake that we've all made, right? Right, because fine means not fat or fine means not in a big body or fine means not heavy, not a heavier weight than all of your other friends. That's right. That's why we have to back up. That's not what it means. That's not what getting better means. And if anything, what is so important here is to be really, you know, working towards getting really aligned with values around inclusion and social justice, because what I do anytime I speak with young people and even parents, 
I show faces at the end of these presentations of Greta and Emma and the faces of the youth that are rallying for Black Lives Matter, because we need the face of this. We need the face of young people that are going to fight to make this world a more inclusive, safe space for all bodies to exist. So it gets better does not mean, and it cannot mean, don't worry, just stick it out. You'll lean out. You'll look just like you want. No, it means it will get better. You will find your people. You will find, if you keep being your authentic self, you will find people that are also their authentic selves and are going to honor you for who you are without you trying to change. It might take a while. And can we talk about the control piece over it? Because that's at the core of so many eating disorders. You said a few minutes ago that this is and isn't something you have control over, which I completely agree with, right? There's the genetic component and then there's the behavioral component. And we haven't even talked about the social justice component of nutritional quality and how when you have less to spend on food, you often get what's called nutritionally dense food, which is not nutritional, right? It's just calorie dense, sugar dense, carb dense. And we know... There's so much data now to just show over and over and over again that people who subsist on nutritionally dense foods because they're spending less at the market because they cannot afford to spend more. It is not a choice. They would make the choice to feed themselves better if they could, but they can't. And so they don't. And there are very clear body effects because you bring in nutritionally dense food and then you have a whole cycle of how you process the sugar and the carbs in your body and you store a lot more of those calories as fat. And side note, asterisk, anyone who's ever spoken to me about food and health knows I'm not a believer in calories and calorie counting because a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. It's about the quality of the calorie and not the quantity. Um, And we can go down that rabbit hole in a different podcast, but I wanna circle back to this kind of idea Oh my God, I don't even remember where I was going with it. <laughs> it's it's really early for me. You guys have been up for three more hours and I've- I'm but going to bed soon, Cara. Exactly. I'm like, my day, my day is almost over. Well, we were, Clearly. we were exploring how we reframe what it means to think yes. about the human's bodies and our relationship to our bodies and our relationship to other people's bodies, including- social justice, making it a more equitable society that allows for including all different kinds of people. And we were talking about control. We, I was talking about control because what I'm curious about, Zoe, is can you help us to understand for people who don't like the body they're living in, for people who are told it's not healthy, whether they need to gain weight or lose weight in order to maximize their health, What's the right amount of control to take? What, how, what does that look like? And as parents or adults who are involved in the lives of tweens and teens, how much should we or should we not step into the role of helping those younger people take that control? And where does it become a slippery slope to an eating disorder? And I would add a category, which is people who don't look the question's away. not big enough already. Right. <laughs> because it's only a 16-part question, I'm going to add a category. You included like they need to gain or lose for health, but like lots of people gain or lose because they don't like the way their bodies look or parents don't like the way their children's bodies look and they implement 
changes for themselves or their kids. Yeah, so, so we're just going to sit back and listen. It's to, you know, solve um, an entire where I, where I run corner. <laughs> so I'm going to say something that I don't know that we're going to see eye to eye on. So I'm, I'm going to be particularly curious, Cara. I believe that weight loss in any growing person is a red flag. I don't care if it's the child that gained 30 pounds, if they're losing weight, I'm worried about that because I, I don't know enough about why, and I don't know enough about what's going to happen five years from now, right? In terms of that risk of weight cycling and also the risk of developing an eating disorder. And I'm just going to answer the pediatric answer to that is there's a very big difference between weight loss and weight maintenance when you're growing. So you are designed to gain while you grow. It's some There should be some Venn diagram overlap of that. If you maintain your weight as you grow and you you were carrying too much weight to begin with, that is generally considered in the pediatric world a healthy way to shed some of that excess weight because you're just distributing that excess weight over more height. But I think most people would agree with you. Weight loss is different than weight maintenance with growth, but with growth. And I think that one of the the sort of strange nuances there is there have been a lot of young people that have come into my practice with a full-blown eating disorder because their eating disorder was missed because they were doing that. So they were perceived to have had sort of excess weight and then they didn't lose 20 pounds. They just stopped gaining. And what nobody was able to see is that the reason that was happening wasn't, you know, I I think about toddlers, right? And how there's that year and you'll tell me which which year it is because I can't remember. I don't think my daughter's there yet, but it's like that year where they don't gain, they just grow. I mean, a lot of them, right? And then no, no doctor's ever worried because she's doing great. You know, even though her weight didn't change, she just grew up. But this is something now, I don't know that we know the definitive truth here because there's obviously a huge percentage of folks that are just like what you're describing, that that's just like a natural part of their development. They're essentially doing this weight maintenance thing. But then you have these missed opportunities for early intervention or early detection of an eating disorder because your kid that was always, you know, in a, in a bigger body is now just maintaining their weight as they grow taller. But meanwhile, they're completely orthorexic or they're completely restricting. That's then setting them up for all of these other kind of chronicity of eating disorder illness. So yeah. Zoe, two things. One, can you define orthorexic for our listeners? And two, let's explore, let's go back to your point earlier about getting curious and noticing other things. If the numbers, the scale, the height, all that can't necessarily be our our best clue. So define orthorexic and then let's go back to like, what are we noticing besides weight and height that might give us a clue that our kids are are struggling? Yeah. So I think Cara actually mentioned this at the beginning when you said that sometimes healthy eating can be like a red flag. Oftentimes healthy eating or eating healthier, right? Eating more vegetables. A lot of people now are like eating fewer carbs. And, and when you start to see your kid who always loved, you know, like snacks, like kids snacks is now starting to eat in a more, I don't know, in a way that even looks like mom and dad or mom and mom or whatever, and is, you know, kind of cutting out groups of foods or 
could be, you know, going vegan or vegetarian does not mean that that is hundred percent an eating disorder, not at all, but changes in eating, which again, it's another fine line because as a mother of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and well, the baby eats anything, but I can't wait for them to eat more nutritious foods. I'm waiting for them to like learn how to love, you know, whatever, whatever I want them to eat, you know? But it's that fine line between when healthy has gone too far. And that's what orthorexia is, right? Orthorexia is when healthy eating has become its own disorder. And so someone is now afraid to eat sugar or is obsessed with the nutritional you know, excellence of a food. This is not compatible with a balanced life. And so that, that would be a good way to understand the difference between healthy eating and orthorexia. My sixth grade math teacher decided to get really healthy and he ate a pound of carrots a day and he turned orange. See, <laughs> there are <laughs> unintended consequences of eating too. They probably like had diarrhea every day or, at or least orange. Poop. All I, I know is one day he was Do orange and the next day. Oh, Mike, for some, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, well. And it's the obsessions. It's the obsessions. I mean, who knows what was going on with the orange guy, but like, the preoccupation with food, right? That's really what we want to be focused on too, is another one of these flags. Like if your kid is just like looking at recipes a lot or is watching the Food Network a lot or is is like cooking a lot and baking a lot, but then like passing it off to others and not eating it themselves. I mean, and then this person is either losing weight or maintaining their weight. You know, it's like something's off. Something's the, not quite that right. baking flag is actually a really consistent one where kids go through a stage, many, where they love to bake. Baking is math in action. It's really, it's chemistry. It's really interesting. I would argue that when I think back at all the eating disordered kids that I've taken care of over the years, the most common thread is that they all started baking and they all started gifting those baked goods to everyone around them but they mm -hmm. didn't necessarily partake at all. And that has been a, that was, became the biggest flag for parents to bring them in actually. Mm -hmm. So we're noticing changes. We're noticing obsessive behavior. We're noticing like, as Car mentions, like a greater sense of desire for control over what gets eaten or bought or made or any of those things. I want to focus for a minute, Zoe, because you a few years ago posted a stat on the Full Bloom Instagram account. It was a it was like an infographic and it just it shook me to the my core, which was something like 50% of eating disorders are born in during the years of puberty. I mean, obviously we're the puberty podcast, but it's important for everybody out there to understand that statistic and understand why that is and a little bit more if we have time about what we can do about it beyond what we've already discussed. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is another one of those moments where we have to disclaim that everybody is different, right? There are so many, I'm sure, unique concerns and abnormalities and things that if you have any doubt about anything, you go to your trusted doctor or, you know, a, a therapist. But generally speaking, my policy is since we know puberty is such a vulnerable time for this, we have to embrace as much as we can a really fat positive, body positive 
vibe. And we have to work extra hard to make it very clear to our children that body changes are normal and necessary. And like, if it's not happening, I mean, I understand you're saying there are kids that then they're on the other side and they're not getting those body changes and they're in a completely different, a different type of vulnerability, but to really make it okay for bodies to change. I know that there's like social pressures will be there. Social media pressures will be there. But if we as parents can just know that this time is really ripe for the development of eating disorder and that we want parents to keep an eye out for, let's say, not praising an onset of healthy eating or being suspicious if your child is like um, dropping a size and wanting you to take them shopping, making sure that you're getting ahead of it by being like, look, your body very well may start changing. It's quite possible you'll go to sleep tonight and tomorrow you'll wake up and the pants won't fit. And I want to make sure that you're covered. So let's make sure we have an extra size handy. Or, you know, I, I like to joke about that that hack that we do when we're pregnant with the, the you know, the, um, the ponytail holder through the jeans. Like I want every, certainly every girl going through puberty to know about that hack because as their bodies change, like, if you think about maternity clothes, like we, we feel very affirmed in our bodies as they change. And we don't really have the same for puberty and this, you know, like nothing is really just screaming at us. This is normal. And expansion is beautiful and essential. And then how you feel about it. Like, let me make sure you have enough support because it can be certainly rocky, but we want our kids to know that those body changes as uncomfortable as they might be as painful as they might be and how desperate someone might want to change them that we want at least to be the voice to say, there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing wrong with your body and, and, and to get really comfortable with fat, because that's the thing that people want to wish away. Would it work to say to a child in the midst of puberty at any point in the midst of puberty, I hear you. I'm not in your body or in your brain. So I don't know exactly how you feel, but I'm hearing everything that you're telling me. So keep telling me, but listen, so long as you keep doing your part and I keep doing my part, which is, you know, trying to nourish ourselves well and get our bodies moving. Cause you know, really that's something you want to practice every day of our lives and mindfulness and sleep. I mean, big, big pieces big, of health and wellness, place. right? Let's see where this lands. Let's see how your body decides to go. Let's keep talking about it. And if you're hitting a point where you really don't like what you're seeing or what you're feeling, let's get help from someone who does this professionally, who can help both of us figure out what's normal and expected and what we might want to do something about. I mean, is that a fair summary of where parents can go regardless of where their kids are on this spectrum of large or small, short or tall, thin or fat, any and all of it, just kind of empower them with the tools of the trade and say, I'm there with you. We can just keep reassessing. I think the one thing I'd add is to, you know, be as, as vocal as you can about there is nothing wrong with your body because kids often don't hear that enough. And even if they still say, I don't care what mom says, like, I hate this. Right. 
at least they had you saying, I know there is nothing wrong with your body. I want every grown up to say that as much as they can, even if kids roll their eyes, because we don't know. A lot of people don't know that there's nothing wrong with a body that doesn't look like the thin ideal. People don't know these things. So to be able to say that, the other thing I would say, and this is really important, to, to sort of be in it with your kid, just like you said, and then know in the back of your mind, if my kid is struggling with this, with the way they feel about any of it, make sure that you're bringing them to a professional that is not going to unintentionally further the stigma. So a lot of parents will say, listen, I'll take you to a, a nutritionist. And then the nutritionist who's well-meaning will put them on some kind of weight maintenance plan or weight loss plan, but they don't have any sort of eating disorder experience. And so we want to find a provider that has a health at every size ethos so that it's not to say that all they'll do is then just tell the kid, no, nothing's wrong. Like just accept yourself as they are. No, like they're going to be able to offer that kid maybe the space they need or the skills they need to make it through this really hard time. But we want to make sure that we're discerning about who we're sending our kids to because the unintended consequences of sending your kid to the wrong provider, it, it can can make can blow the problem further up. Well, and and I know we're short on time and we need to wrap up, but Vanessa before we did this interview, Vanessa must have called and texted me 25 times saying, can you go there on the tension between the therapists who take care of eating disorders patients and pediatricians? Because I've always said there's a lot of tension there. Mm -hmm. These are not necessarily the most, they're, they're not relationships where there's a lot of communication oftentimes. And it's a real disservice to the kids and their families but uh, what you're describing is, I think, at the root of why there's a real tension between the people who are doing the weight checks and following kind of the physical health parameters. We don't want kids to develop type 2 diabetes. We don't want, right? So there are all these things that we in a pediatrician's office are looking out for. The, there are very different things that eating disorders therapists are looking for it would be really wonderful if we could all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We don't, and parents yes. need to know that. I mean, I really like you, Zoe, and I'm so excited to be talking to you. And I, I think, you know, but, um, and I, I, I actually have connected with a ton of eating disorders therapists and, and have the utmost respect, but they, it's, there's, there's just a, there's a real tension generally between the, the two groups of people. There is. And I feel like um, if you have a couple minutes, I want us to talk a little bit about this. Yeah. My husband will figure, figure it out. I think you're right. And I have, because I work as an eating disorder therapist, I have found those pediatricians that it works, you know, and that there's a capacity to hold both but you're so right. And that we would really, I do believe we would see fewer eating disorders if we could have more collaboration, if we could have more connection in there, because what ends up happening is, and I, I see this happen with pediatricians I respect and like, and families that love their pediatrician, but the pediatrician will make a recommendation to, let's say that kid that's approaching like a kind of pre-diabetic state and say things like, you have to cut this get right. rid of the smoothies, get rid of the soda, get rid of the this. Now it's a sound recommendation. Then when the kid comes to me and they're actually binging on bags of candy, 
because they can no longer have their fruit smoothie in the morning. That was their like safe breakfast. What are we doing? You yeah. know, we have, yeah. we have a problem because of course it makes sense. And as I am a therapist, I'm not a physician. I am in a constant state of deference to the medical doctors that I collaborate with because you have a whole skill set that I don't have. So I need that information. And then at the same time, I have to bring these observations to you and say, well, can we, how can we get the smoothie back? Because it's not that I don't care about the blood sugar. I care about the blood sugar, but at the same time, this kid is binging on, on more sugar than she would have had, had she just kept her smoothie. So I feel like this is a good example, right. Of, of this, of this tension. I interviewed the wonderful Una Hansen last spring as we were approaching summer and I was hearing from a lot of families that I work with about concerns about significant weight gain, significant weight loss, so on and so forth. And she had two recommendations that I found actionable and super helpful, one of which gets at this tension between pediatricians and other folks working in the eating disorder space, which is... Pediatricians have to weigh your kid. They have to weigh your kid, you know, at every annual. They have to track what's going on for the very reasons you guys discussed earlier in the podcast. However, they don't have to tell your kid or tell you in front of your kid what their weight is. And so she recommends speaking to the pediatrician's office ahead of time and saying, hey, I know you got to weigh my kid. Please don't talk about what their weight is in front of them because we're being very careful. And like, for instance, I happen to think that maybe my kid has gained 20 pounds this year. And when they find out the actual number because of the society we live in, they might be very troubled, upset, or worried when they hear from you the number. So I really liked that. It's sort of laying the groundwork ahead of a pediatrician's appointment to say, like, we're not talking about the weight in front of the kid because my kid actually seems happy and fine and whatever. And the other recommendation she made, and we can get back to the pediatrician thing, but I want to, I want to mention it. Get your kids clothes that fit. If your child's clothing does not fit them as much as it upsets you, right? Getting back to noticing your reaction to it, as much as it upsets you, it is so awful if they're forced to wear clothing that doesn't fit them, that is too tight that makes them uncomfortable, that potentially makes them feel ashamed that they don't fit into their clothing anymore. So like we joke about the belt extender, but I had a teenager say to me who heard Una Hansen's comments like, oh my God, it's amazing. Like when I got clothing that fit me, I felt so much better about my body, even though my body hadn't changed. It's critical and it's actually in um, there's this, you know, phenomenon of quote, feeling fat, which is uh, an experience that a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I know what, I know what that feels like to feel fat, which of course it's problematic that we have a whole like psychological phenomenon about not wanting to feel like other human beings that live in this world. But one of the triggers for that feeling fat experience is like a pant, like a belt strap. That's just too tight, right? A sensation in our bodies. And so that is incredibly important and protective. The other thing I'll say, it's a, it's to build on what Uno told you. One, there was this, I'll send you guys the researchers, the study out of, I think Michigan, she was on my podcast talking about 
a study where they looked at well checks and the kids going in that were informed of their weight status. They It was looking at the stigmatizing language of like obese or overweight just with the BMI. And that just the mention of the word, what flowed from that was worse health behaviors, right? And so it's like about self-conception. Like in a way, what we want is for all of our children to believe they are healthy and good. Because if they believe they are healthy and good, they will keep taking care of their bodies. They will keep moving them and checking in with how they feel and wanting to shower. And, you know, health behaviors beget health behaviors. And if we have a a crappy self-concept when it could just be someone said, well, you are overweight or you are obese, just the word is enough to plant a seed. There's something wrong with me. The obesity report cards, for example, I've talked to a lot of people. New York state did them for a while. Like a lot of people that are just essentially being told there's something fundamentally wrong with you, fix it. And and anyway, so I think we're talking about a lot of different things. And one of them is sort of the way we talk about this stuff, right? We can still look at real uh, medical things, but can we do it without talking about weight in a way that ultimately is stigmatizing and making it hard for people to believe that they are worthy and good? Thank you for so generously giving us your time and putting all of your incredible work out into the world with your Instagram account, Full Bloom Project, and your podcast, Full Bloom Podcast. We are grateful and please, please come back when you can. I will. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.